0: Uh, we are into a new year, turning around from 2019 to 2020, and uh, and Mark, I need your help. I left the clicker right there on my, on my seat, but it also gives me an opportunity to say, Mark didn't move. He was just on vacation. There was some, some level of misunderstanding among some folks, especially when they saw the Christmas tree um, that seemed like it was a tropical environment. And uh, and he was on vacation, but Mark, it is good to have you back. I'm glad you, glad you didn't stay down there. Amen. Yeah. See, two of us are really excited that you're you're here and back. No, <laughs> no, absolutely love it, man. Um, I was looking at this particular picture. I like it because it, it helped me to realize how ugly 2019 is compared to 2020. I mean, look at that. 2019, there's no symmetry, there's no repeating of digits, there's no association with good eyesight. I mean, you got nothing in 2019. So, good riddance, 2019. Thank you. Welcome, 2020. We're glad that you're here, right? Yes. Oh, I feel, yes. <laughs> Some of you are like, I don't know yet. I don't know. Um, 2020. So, there is an image that I want to play off of. Um, relating to our, uh, our sermon for the day. And here I asked for it, and maybe, 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 one more. All right, let me see. Yeah, it's working now. It's working now. Let's get really fast through the sermon. Oh, now we're done, and we can go home. It's perfect. 2020. 2020 vision. You could see from 20 feet what a normal, average, eyesighted person could see from 20 feet. Do any of you have normal, perfect, 20-20 vision without contacts, without glasses? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have to work harder to love you. (laughs) Because my eyesight's horrible. Like, no joke, from 20 feet, I can see the eye chart as well as somebody can standing 1.2 miles away. Um, That's about how bad my eyesight is. Uh, One time, I was in the optometrist's office. The optometrist left, had a beer, came back. I didn't know until I smelled it on his breath. Like that's how bad my eyesight is. You could be in the other room looking through the wall. No, that's not true. That's not a true story. You're like, wow, what optometrist was that? I don't think I want to go there. Um, It's bad. It's really bad. And so here's here's my realization. Had I been born in the time of Jesus 2,000 years ago, without my contacts, without my glasses, I very well could have been the guy coming to Jesus saying, Jesus, I want to see. I want to see. Because all of my friends would have considered me blind. Like there's, I mean, for me to be able to maximize my potential as a human, I have to have glasses. For me to be able to see the universe, see the the world around me correctly, I have to have my contacts or my glasses. And so then I realized there is something in the Bible that is this for all of us that are Christians. Our set of lenses, through which we see the universe more clearly, through which we see truth more clearly, and that particular thing is called the gospel. so in the Bible, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let me talk basic for, for those of you that don 't kind of come from a Christian background for just a little bit long time Christians though I think you 're going to pick up a few things that may, may help you in your own life. I want to talk about what 's the gospel, what is it not, and then what difference does it make but I realized that in our normal way of talking about the first four books of the New Testament, we oftentimes call them the Gospels, like they're plural. Well, there are four books, but around 200 AD and after, we started calling those as Christians the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Luke, the Gospel according to Mark, the Gospel according to, who's the last one? John, kind of, you know, so as you you start thinking about that, it's four different perspectives of one particular story, and the word gospel, many of you already know, means good news, positive information. This is, this is breaking information. This is new information that is really good, that's really positive, positive. and so there is a word that as the writers were writing about Jesus, they called it gospel, and so some translations translate it gospel. Some take it the next step to say what it means, which is good news, the good news of Jesus, according to Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. Four different perspectives, and you can find internet sites and you can find professors and different people that push back against the message of the Bible by saying, wait, they don't all agree, they're all very different. Well, let me talk about that as somebody who does a lot of funerals. And when I've done funerals, I have seen again and again people stand up and talk about the person who died in ways that as I watch some of the other people, they start crinkling up their face, like, wait, are you talking about the same person that I knew? You know? And even brothers and sisters, as they talk about mom, they come at it from two different angles and they have sometimes two different experiences. And sometimes one will be like, oh, she was so funny. And the other one that locked horns with, with mom again and again, it's like I didn't find it so funny, right? You know, and so as you look at the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're gonna find four different ways of looking at it, but all of them agree that the gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that death and resurrection of Jesus gets a lot of ink in the writings of the biography of Jesus, a disproportionately important and large amount of writing is about the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's as though the gospel writers are saying, yes, Jesus is a great teacher. Yes, his teaching can help you to live. Yes, he was the perfect human and God together, and all that is good, and that's important, but what you've got to also understand is his death and resurrection saves you. Now they define salvation kind of from different perspectives. You know, is it saving us from sin? Is it saving us from the power of Satan? Is it saving us from our own selfishness? Is it saving us from the curse of evil? Yes, it's all of those things. And the different gospel writers will, will emphasize those different perspectives. But it's all four. So the ancient Christians said all of that, all those different perspectives are true. So we put that together. That is the gospel. So as we look at that, then, it makes total sense why, then when Paul was writing to the Corinthian Christians, and there was some confusion about who Jesus was and about what's important and what's, what's not important, in that letter, Paul writes, here is the gospel. Don't forget, don't let it get perverted, don't get confused in this world. Here are the glasses through which we see the world in truth. And he says, look, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, the good news that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. They had to take their stand on it. Why? Because their neighbors around that were pagans might be like, hey, have you been to the temple of Aphrodite lately? <laughs> let's, let's go check it out and let's go partake. You know, and they're like, no, 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 I'm following this guy Jesus. What? That doesn't sound very fun. You know, and so they had to take their stand on this. Maybe you have people in your school or in your workplace that look at the whole idea of Jesus and this whole death and resurrection. Oh, that's silly. That's stupid. Going to church is a waste of time, especially when it's nice outside, and you could actually play golf in January. Wouldn't it be better to go play golf in January? And you're like, no, I'm going to go worship the risen Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be nice to play golf in January? You know, it's like, no, no, no. Time out. In this culture, it was just as countercultural for people to worship this risen Jesus, by which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. And here it is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the 12, and after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. We're talking about eyewitness testimony that when he rose from the dead, it wasn't just one person's kind of like wishful thinking, or one person had kind of drunk too much, and they realized, oh wait, I think I see Jesus. Wasn't that? It's multiple different people seeing the risen Jesus in multiple different situations, encountering him, some of them eating with him, talking with him, realizing, wait, this is a reality that is a part of this whole gospel message of what God has done for us. So as you see, all these different people that he appeared to, the the thrust of how important this was to Paul could not be overstated. Like, if I I were to jump up and down and yell, this is the most important thing. Like, that's kind of the way this is coming across in Paul's writings. He's like, look, it's of first importance, and by this you are saved. And remember, you could look at the salvation from different perspectives, but it's all the death and resurrection of Jesus that saves us. Now, um, quick commercial. uh, When Pastor Peggy leads the Creed class, launching very soon and you read about it in the bulletin it's talking about the Apostles Creed so not long after the writing of the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, not long after that when people would be baptized by Christians in different places they started saying here is the statement of faith that we believe and part of what we believe is that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, the third day he nice you're with me That was like non-negotiable. It's like, if you don't believe this in kind of that literal sense then it's, it's not Christianity. You can believe whatever you want, just don't call it Christianity if you depart from that. Why? Because this is what saves us both now and in eternity from evil, sin, the power of Satan, the power of our own selfishness, the curse that we live under, right? This is what is the complete game changer gospel. So, what is not the gospel? Well, the statement Jesus didn't really literally die. Jesus didn't literally die. There's an entire religious book out there that is relatively popular that says Jesus didn't really die; he just seemed to die, and then in kind of the, the coolness of the tomb, he was resuscitated, and then he lived again. The name of that book? The uh, Quran. The Quran. Quran talks about Jesus. It says yes, there was a Jesus, but he didn't really die. And the Christians are like, wait, that's a central tenet of our faith that the Christians have been living out for hundreds of years before the Quran was written, saying, wait a second. No, 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 that, that undercuts the whole point of Jesus coming and living. What about, ah, he didn't really raise from the dead, not really physically. No, it's just the idea of resurrection is that we just remember Jesus. We just remember Jesus, and maybe we have positive thoughts and we have hope. A colleague of mine, United Methodist pastor, different town I won't call him out I'm not into putting people down all that kind of stuff however it's important for us to understand I listened to his Easter message Easter resurrection of Jesus right you're like I only come on Christmas and Easter and I always hear the same stories over and over again (laughs) that's right because that's what they're about right Easter resurrection of Jesus so his his story and his in his sermon was all about the power of resurrection is our positive thinking like, it's, it's moving from negative thinking to positive thinking. It's moving from a lack of hope to having hope. And we all have resurrection, and we can all have a resurrection story. And my heart was sinking, because I was like, dude, like, it's not that you're wrong that we need to think more positively. It's not that you're wrong that we need to have hope. It's not that you're wrong on those. But you're not giving people that which breaks the power of sin in our life, and that in our grasp for air as we're dying, this is the one thing we can hope in. At that point, when I know that I'm not going to get better and I'm going to die, like, you better tell me about the resurrected Jesus so that I can believe that somebody has power over this death. At that point, I don't need positive thinking. You know, there comes a point at which positive thinking doesn't help you any. Like, you know, if you have the arrow sticking through you and you're about to die, you know, somebody comes along and says, hey, just think, look how beautiful it is outside today. I'm going to be like, no, dude, I'm dying. I'm going to see my creator in just a minute. And I've done some bad things and I have some guilt. Can you help me with that? Oh, well, no. Unless, yes, there is this guy, Jesus, who took all of that guilt and shame and all that on himself. Believe me, when I see Jesus face-to-face, and God the Father is, is in the room, I am not going to be able to say, hey, I deserve heaven, don't I? Because I'm a really good guy. I mean, you see how I lived, right? And I did so much good for people. And Jesus is not going to be like, oh, wow, yeah, you are such a good guy. I obviously owe you eternity, right? That's not going to happen. Like, I'm going to have to come before the Lord and say, I'm really glad that Jesus died for me, and that his grace counts for me, and that I can lean into the fact that it's what he did for me that saved me. If it were not so, his death and resurrection makes no sense. Like, if I were writing about Jesus as a biographer, and I thought the only important thing was his teaching, then I would write all about his teaching, and maybe at the very end say, and they misunderstood him and killed him on a cross, and that'd be the end of the story. But the biographies of Jesus don't read like that. They read as this culmination, climax story of his death and then resurrection. That everything was like leading up to that point. This idea then of Jesus was just a great prophet or he's a great teacher. Or if you're Buddhist or Hindu, sometimes people will say, he's a great bodhisattva. Which means he was an enlightened person. And I get where they're coming from, I understand Because he he has amazing teaching. He does. And it's helpful. And and on Sundays we talk about that, how his teaching helps us to live. At the same time, there are a lot of other moral teachers out there, and they have good things to say, and they help us to live. And that's all great and fine. But when you're gasping for air, uh, breathing your last breath, all of those folks that are dead can't help. And all that good teaching can't help. And that's why the gospel authors are like, look, when he died and rose from the dead, and we realized he had predicted it, and he had said, this is for you, and this is to break that power and that curse of evil on your life and that sin that just so, so, so imprisons you. This saves you. And when you see God, the Father, face to face, Jesus says, I had died for this person, I count for them. What a beautiful, like that is mind-blowing. So different than saying, look, he's a great prophet or a teacher of a bodhisattva. Does that make sense? If not, I mean, I've still got my notes. I can go back. I can preach it again. All right? It's like, no, man. But this is this is really, really prevalent, isn't it? Let me give you the, the final one here, and then I'll, I'll kind of move on to a couple of other things. This, explained as the gospel, is pervasive, even in churches now. And I have contemporaries. I'm like, Man, yes, God does love you and accepts you the way that you are to an extent. It's like, you know, when God looks at you, yes, God is filled with love for you. And we need to remind people of that. That's beautiful. That is not the gospel. That in and of itself does not save you. If it did, then all you'd need is the book of Psalms. And you could find in the book of Psalms, you know, statements where God's love is never ending and God loves you. And that's great. and That's wonderful. But the death and resurrection of Jesus would not be needed. The gospel authors and that which Christians stood on and said this is the main thing that we have to keep the main thing was yes, he loves you, but Jesus needs to come and die for you to save you. There's punishment that needs to be paid. There's a ransom that needs to be paid. There's rescue from the power of sin. There's rescue from Satan. There's rescue from your own selfishness and that curse. There's all this stuff that needs to happen. So the Old Testament points to Jesus, predicts him, he then predicts his own death and resurrection and then he lives it out and then that as we believe it we live it and we lean into it it changes everything. You're like man why do we get so off track these days? Well it's been for 2,000 years that kind of Christians that believe this have been kind of Struggling with other folks that are like, no, that's not really it. No, let's leave out you know, let's leave out the whole cross and death and resurrection stuff. That's nasty and that seems gruesome and bloody. Let's just kind of push that to the back. That's secondary. Well, Jesus himself, when he was teaching, realized that there were people that were like counterfeits coming around. And you look in Jewish history, and yes, indeed, there were. People saying, I'm the Messiah. There were competing voices. So Jesus himself said, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray. You're like, wow, that person has real power. Oh, man, that person did a miracle. Maybe they're of God. Well, maybe, maybe not. Jesus is like, look, even in my day, there are different false voices out there. Don't be led astray. So then um, later on, as Christians were trying to live this out, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the same thing was happening. It's almost as if there's an evil out there that wants to sidetrack us. Do you notice that? It's like there's almost like there's some evil guy. Let's call him, I don't know, the devil, that's trying to sidetrack people, right? But there is, trying to get us sidetracked. And Peter writes, False prophets, false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who, and you see that word? Denying the master who bought them. Weird. Weird. Jesus had to buy me like I was imprisoned to something? Yeah. That's part of how he saves us. Bringing then upon themselves swift destruction. So what's the gospel? The gospel is that entire account, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, before his death and resurrection, was was, um, preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That is so different from most other religious systems and philosophies and stuff that says, hey, you need to think better, you need to do better. You need to think better, you need to do better. This is God saying, look, that's still going to fall short. I will come to you. You don't have to work your way to me. I will come to you and do for you that which you can't do for yourself. And so then the eternity, the life, is given to you because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. How does it work? How does it, what kind of difference does it make? Let's talk about a couple of different things. Just got two, two expressions of how the gospel affects us right now, and in the weeks to come, I'll build on that. One is marriage. My wife wasn't in the first service. Made it a little easier to talk about this subject because then I can say whatever I want, and there is no fact checker sitting right there right now. Marriage is <laughs> hard. Isn't that interesting that that's what the word that just came out with? Mine's easy because I'm easy to live with, right? I mean, it's like every day Jennifer wakes up and she's like, oh, paradise, you know? So I don't know what you mean by mar- No, no. Marriage is hard. Marriage is hard. Like, And as I was reading about this, um, Statistics are always a little dangerous. You kind of, kind of watch this. So I had to look at several different studies to kind of see if they were all saying the same thing. And indeed, for people who call themselves Christians, we get divorced at about the same rate as people who don't. In fact, there's some studies that say for folks that call themselves Christians, the divorce rates even at times higher. <laughs> How can that be? However, as you dig into to the to the data, and George Barnes has done some work on this, and so have some other uh, other studies if you look at not just what they say they call themselves, but their practices, those who go to church frequently, try to get their kids into church frequently, pray on their own, and try to do some kind of like Bible study types of stuff. We're not talking like you got to be exactly like Jesus, but we're just talking to take your your faith seriously. 30 to 35 percent lower divorce rate. Fact check me if you want. Totally good. But you see the difference. Not just what we say, but do you believe and live out the gospel in some way, shape, or form, or at least are you trying to connect? And so here's where I, I realized, and I realized this about myself. I'll put myself on the chopping block. When I start to believe the false gospel that says, Nathan, God loves you just the way that you are. God wants you to be happy. The central thing in your life is your own happiness. And those of you that have been married a long time, you realize, <laughs> That'll destroy you. That'll destroy your relationship. Why? Because now you look at the other person as a commodity. Will they give me pleasure? Will they bring me happiness? Is it going well in my own eyes? Yes or no? That's, not the, that, that's a false gospel, but it will destroy you. So when you feel like saying that next thing to your spouse that may be hurtful, if this is your false gospel understanding as a Christian, so to speak, You're going to be like, well, I need to say whatever I want to say that makes me happy. (laughs) Right? You live the gospel out, and you let Jesus' death and resurrection be the the force in your life that you're leaning into and that you believe. Then you realize, wait, it's God's will, not mine, that needs to be done. Before Jesus was on the cross, he was praying out, Father, not my will, but yours be done. You can fact check that in the New Testament. If that's my understanding, and it's God's will and it's God's pleasure, and Jesus in his teaching said, The greatest among you will be the servant of all, that completely reorients the way that I speak to my spouse, the way that I live. I'm not the focus anymore. You see the difference? This is game changing in your relationship. And unfortunately, it takes like daily practice because there will be sometimes. I mean, it's been a long time. I mean, it's been years since I did this over here, right, Jennifer? Years. Probably never, never made that mistake, right? This is game-changing. How about um, in terms of helping humans? Just being humanistic, which is right now a really powerful kind of, kind of thing where Christians are trying to figure out, does the gospel really makes, make sense in terms of the death and resurrection of Jesus, or is it just treat people nicely? Is that Christianity. I was talking with an agnostic friend of mine, doesn't go to church much, doesn't really believe in God much, definitely doesn't believe in death and resurrection of Jesus, but she cares about people. And I said, hey, when people are down in their luck and they're trying to get help and they're trying to get jobs, um, does jobs and family services just kind of like resolve all of that? Because I, I really want to know, because I'm, I'm just trying to figure all this out. And she knew them well and was like, well, I, you know, yeah, but, you know. And I was like, where do you go to get help? And she goes, well... Sometimes you got to go to like a Christian organization, or a mission, or a church, and I was like, I was not trying to be a jerk. I truly wasn't. I was just trying to understand, but when she said that, I was like, if my friend's willing to say that, and then I started realizing, wait a second, you're right. These places were started by Christians who are like, it's not about me and my happiness. It's about serving God and serving others sacrificially, death and resurrection, being willing to even die on a cross. That gospel saves us from our own selfishness. It frees us from that, that power that just wants to drag us down, and you start looking at the the origin of hospitals in our country, the origin of schools in our country. You start looking at the red, what is it? Is it the red spaghetti monster symbol of atheism? (laughs) No, it's the red, what? Cross. Started there, right? Then other organizations have said, oh, that's a good idea. Oh, we should emulate that. Oh, we should be like that. And so you can find secular ones now, but who started it and why? And what was the basis? It was death and resurrection as a literal fact of what our Savior did for us, so that even as I serve others, if it costs me my life, it's worth it. So I'm going to pray for just a, a, a second, and then I'm going to turn over to Mark, and he's going to lead us in Holy Communion, because the gospel that we see, the theologian N.T. Wright said that when Jesus was trying to give us the truth of, of life... He didn't just, like, give us a theory. He gave us a meal. That meal connected us to the death and resurrection of himself when he said, this is my body, this is my blood. It connects us to the reality that the death and resurrection of Jesus changes everything, changes from the inside out for all of eternity. Let's pray. God, I pray that for those that are, are starting to believe this gospel and are starting to take that step in this year of 2020, that you would encourage them, that as they eat and drink together with your family here, that they would be filled with your spirit, encouraged, and that they would know that this is true, and that you are saving them forever and ever. And for the rest of us, Lord, we recommit our lives to you in this act as we take and eat and as we drink. May you be truly present and help us to love you as our and heavenly Father. Amen.